You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. If we turn your Bible to John chapter 14, we're going to complete this chapter today. Verses 25 to 31. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra for leading us. Just one brief announcement. As Cliff brought out, we had this reunion of former interns and uh, young men who were trained in preaching class by Brother Al, and we continued that class after he retired, and we're kicking it off again this fall. It will be the Tuesday of nine days from now. It's not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, uh, September the 12th, I believe, at 6.30 a.m., and... uh, we want any man who, who wants to discuss preaching and pastoral ministry to be there. We, it was originally started for the college students, but we want every age there if, if possible. We're going to be going through a book called Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. It's an excellent book, and I realize it's early for college students, but as one who spent many years in college, I can tell you this. You won't regret the early mornings looking back on your college days. You will regret those late nights, but you won't regret <laughs> those early mornings. And so it's a good time, a strategic time. If you have questions, we have a book. Uh, if you have money, you can buy the book. If you're broke, we'll give you the book. It's on the house. Uh, we want you to be there. You can come see me, or you can uh, reach out to Gretchen Hood, my secretary, uh, and we can secure a book for you. We have them in the office Uh, That is Paul Tripp's Dangerous Calling. We'd love to have you here starting on September 12th at 6.30 a.m. in room 208. We'll be in chapter 1 the first week, so be prepared. Well, if you would look with me in John 14, we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 31. And just for context, verses 15 to 17, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Paraclete is the word there, one who comes alongside another, to be with you forever. Remarkable promise there. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Speaking to the believers, the disciples here. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious promise. A promise among many promises that Jesus is giving his disciples just hours out of the most heinous and tragic event in the history of the world, the cross. And yet, through that cross, the greatest good Greatest redeeming good comes. So many promises, Lord, to encourage us today. I pray that you would take these promises and through through this weak preacher, confirm them on our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tomorrow, September the 4th, 25 years ago, I received a phone call that devastated me. My beloved grandmother, who I'd lived next door to my whole life, uh, the most godly woman I'd ever known, she had liver cancer. 
And it devastated. It rocked me. It rocked my family. And seven weeks later, she would die. She was a picture of health. We get a call. She has cancer. And seven weeks later, she is dead. She died on October 23rd of 1998. And so between the time of that announcement and her death, I went home every weekend. I was, I was living in Nashville. And I was driving six hours every weekend to go spend time with her. But on the, the weekend that she died, ironically, I had planned not to go home. I would just, it, it was a long trip. I had a lot of work to do. But then a friend of mine, uh, one I will be forever grateful for, said, you know, if you don't go home this weekend and something happens, you'll forever regret it. And so I called my family and said, I'm coming. They did not tell me the state she was in. When I arrived, the hospice nurse met me at the door. And she said, she's waiting for you. And I went into the room. The whole family was gathered in the room. They had all said goodbye to her. I got on my knees, and I held her hand, and I said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have finished the race. Go home to your Lord. And she breathed one more time and went into glory. And the nurse said, the only way to explain that that she breathed one more time after you said those words as she had been holding out to see you. She had been holding out on the promise that she was going to see you one more time. You said last time, I said that promises are powerful. They're powerful. Especially in dark hours, promises are powerful. And just hours out from the, the most tragic event in the history of the world, the cross, Jesus is laying one promise after another, stacking them one after another for his disciples. It may seem to them that leaving them is the worst thing that could ever happen, that Jesus would leave them. And yet he is saying, it is to your advantage. You need to trust me. It is to your advantage, and it's to the advantage of the church of all ages that I go away. And we saw for one reason, he's going to prepare a better place for us. In this place, there will be no liver cancer. There will be no death. There will be no suffering, no, no more tears, except perhaps the tears of joy. and No more grief, no more sin and rebellion. But he's also going to make a way for us to come to that place through the cross. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he would say. He's also going away because by going to the cross, he shows us a greater revelation of who God is. We, say that in, we see that in the cross that, yes, God judges sin. He is just, and he is righteous, and he's holy. But in the cross, we see also that he is gracious and merciful. And so wise to be able to devise such a plan where he can be both just and the justifier. He's also going away uh, so that we might, by the Spirit, do even greater works than, than he did. His works were confined to that area um, 
surrounding Israel. But, what, but now that he's going away, the church will spread and, and extend that work to the ends of the earth. He's also going away so that he might send the paraclete. And we saw last time that in sending the paraclete, we are promised that we will no longer be orphans. We will no longer be homeless as well. And this brings us to our passage today, starting in verse 25. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have the promise of inspiration from the Spirit. Now, let me explain that in just a moment. Uh, that's not a promise to every believer here per se, but we have the promise of the inspiration from the Spirit. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you. Again, the things uh, where he is encouraging them about why it's better that he goes away. While I'm still with you, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this is the second of four times that John in this gospel uses that language of the helper. Again, we saw that this word is paraclete. It's someone who comes alongside another. The Holy Spirit is being sent to come alongside the believer, the omnipotent Holy Spirit. And he's coming to extend the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. Now, we also saw last time, remarkably, that the same writer of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, writes in 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus is also our paraclete. He says, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an, a paraclete. To the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Do you realize because he went away, you have two paracletes. If you're a believer today, you have two helpers, two comforters, two advocates. One who indwells us, that's the Holy Spirit. And one because of his victory, his resurrection, his ascension. One who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Two paracletes for every believer. These are glorious promises that he is stacking upon one after another. Now, here, this paraclete, this helper, is being sent by the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will come, notice, to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, what are the all things? And to whom is this promise being made? Well, the all things is all that Jesus has taught the apostles about how he is the fulfillment of all the promises, all the types, all the shadows, all the institutions, all the offices of the Old Testament, how he is the fulfillment of all of these realities of the Old Testament that Hebrews calls the shadows where Christ is the substance. Where Paul says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So he's alluding to that. But who is this a promise to? Most particularly and this is for our benefit this is a promise to the apostles who would go on to write what we know 
as the New Testament. Jesus is speaking here to what theologians would later call the inspiration of Scripture. Where God breathes out the very words he wants the writers of Scripture to write. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, causing them to write the very words of God. That's why we can affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, because the very words of God are breathed out by God through Christ and by the Spirit in such a way, okay, in such a way that simultaneously the, the integrity of the writer, the human writer's personality is not impugned. And in fact, these words come out through the very literary style and writing styles of these, these apostles. And the fruit of that ministry would be what we call the New Testament. And so this is a direct promise, verse 26, that he is going to inspire these apostles to write the words that he had given them, bring them to remembrance. But with that said, there's also a secondary promise to the church of all ages, that he would grant us illumination on this, this New Testament. So without the scripture, we, we can know nothing rightly of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And hence the need for this, the Holy Spirit to come and to inspire these, these human authors. But the Spirit also gives us light, gives us illumination. He illumines our minds that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Christ through these scriptures. We cannot divorce the Word of God, the mind of God, from these inspired scriptures. Not only that, the, the, the Holy Spirit rejoices our hearts in the reality that what we read in these, these scriptures are true and that they find their fulfillment and glory in Jesus. In other words, it's to our advantage that Jesus went away so that we might have the inspired scriptures. But a second reason it's to our advantage is not only do we have the promise of the inspiration of the Spirit, we have the promise of the fruit of the Spirit. Look with me in verse 27. This is a verse, one of the most beloved verses in, in the Gospel of John. You will often read these words uh, or hear them read at funerals and other times of, of, of turmoil. These are glorious words, a glorious promise. Verse 27, peace I live with there. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. He's saying there the world offers a kind of peace. It's a fa peace. It's a, it's a pseudo peace. It's, a, it's an illusion. It's a peace replacement. It's not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So, this is what scholars call an inclusio. What do I mean by that? It inspired bookends, which gives us the main point of what is contained in those bookends. If you'll look back in chapter 14, verse 1, how did he begin this section? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
And now he comes back and he reaffirms that promise, let not your heart be troubled. But notice what's new about this promise. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now, why don't I say this is the promise of the fruit of the Spirit? Well, the whole section is about the coming and the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we know from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So this is a promise of peace from the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to keep in mind the disciples here, Jesus himself here, are facing a tsunami. It's a tsunami-level storm, okay? A storm that they would uh, have never faced in their lives. And they had very good reason to fear. Just like you will have many circumstances in your life where you have very good reason to fear. And Jesus is saying, you have a better reason not to fear. And he has given us these reasons here. Now, as is evidenced by the 11, where they're about to go through this hell on earth as, as their best friend, their, their Lord is about to be put on a cross and he's going to leave them. And then they are going to face the next years and decades with severe persecution, preaching his name, as is evident by these these 11, these disciples, being a believer does not sequester us from trials. Now, now, some trials are a result of our sin. They're brought on by our sin. In fact, chapter 14, again, begins with let not your hearts be troubled. But John didn't write chapter 14 there. That was added later. He's continuing a thought from the end of chapter 13 where he promised Peter, he said, he prophesied to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And so Peter is going to go through a, a storm because of his own sin. And even with that, Jesus promises him, you know, let not your heart be troubled. Just believe in me. In other words, I'm going to make provision for your denials by going away and going to the cross. So some trials we face are brought on by our sin. Which means if we could just flee, we could avoid many trials that we have in our lives. But there are some trials brought on by just difficult providence. They're brought on just because we are disciples. This is the kind of trial that Jesus is addressing particularly here. He's leaving his disciples. And they're going to go through a firestorm for the rest of their life because of their identification with Jesus. I've just finished a book on the theology of John Newton, and who wrote Amazing Grace. But what a remarkable man of God he was. And in his writings, he gives reasons for why the believer must go through trials. And I'm going to come back to this when we get to chapter 16 where Jesus says, in this world you will have many tribulations. So I'm going to expand on this when we get to chapter 16. But I wanted to give you the reasons that John Newton gives for why even the believer must go through trials. First of all, trials smoke out our idols. Even believers 
can struggle daily with functional idolatry. The trials expose what we're really trusting in at that moment. The trials expose what we're truly loving and treasuring. Secondly, trials drive us to pray. You know that experientially. You may go through the motions of prayer when you're on the mountain, but there's a fervency that comes when the bottom has dropped out, right? Third, trials call back wandering hearts. As the song says, our hearts are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. And trials tether us back to God. Fourth, trials humble proud hearts. Are we prone to pride? Are we prone to self-sufficiency? They humble us, and that's for our good. Fifth, trials kill worldliness. Even the believer can struggle with worldliness, and trials remind us this is not our home. We are just passing through. There is nothing in this created order we can trust in. Sixth, trials are icy water on sleepy souls. Do you get dull in your walk? We all do. That's how weak we are in the flesh. And trials are like pouring ice water on your sleepy soul. Seventh, trials sweeten the promises. I was reminded of that on Friday. Uh, John Martin, who, who, who takes the filter of hope to the world, he brought in this nasty water, and he ran it through a, a filter. And all of a sudden, that water is filtered and clean, and, and he asked, does anybody want to drink it? Nobody wanted to drink it. Even though we had the promise of that water being clean. And the reason we didn't want to drink it is because we were all hydrated. We didn't need to drink it. We didn't, we didn't long for that water. But I can tell you, I have had moments in two-a-days where I would have drank the, the nasty water. <laughs> and what trials do is they sweeten the promises. Those promises are sweet, but we don't sense their sweetness until the bottom drops out. Also, trials prove grace. Grace shouldn't need proving, but in our weakness it does. And we recognize in the trials, whether they're trials brought on by our sin or trials just brought on by hard providence, frowning providence, they prove that God's grace is sufficient, that his manna is sufficient each day. Trials teach compassion. If you've been through a, a particular kind of trial or storm, it gives you sensitivities that you would not have otherwise for people who are going through that. And then 10th, trials produce confidence in God. He is able to sustain us and preserve us in those trials. You may know that intellectually, but through the trials you learn he is able and he is sufficient. I call that Godfidence. Godfidence. But I would offer, in addition to John Newton, that one of the best purposes of trials is to show us our need 
for spirit-produced peace. You know, I'm convinced that the believers of yesteryear, uh, before there was antibiotics and medicines we could trust in and medical procedures we could trust in, before there were conveniences like air conditioning, and I am grateful for the man who invented that. I've always said if anyone was saved by works, he'll be there. Uh, but we're not saved by works. Um, but the reality is the Christians of yesteryear, I believe, were happier than we are. And I mean happy in the, in the joyful sense because they didn't have anywhere to turn for peace but God himself. We have many more options for pseudo-peace than they. And trials drive home our need for what only the Holy Spirit can produce, the peace of God. And this peace is fundamental for having and experiencing all that God has for his people. Now, importantly, this is remarkable. I'd never seen this till I studied this passage this week. I've read this passage, as you have, many times. But notice Jesus says, my peace. It's his peace. How come I've never seen that? Later in chapter 15, he will say in verse 9, abide in my love. It's his love. And then in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. If you remember from Galatians 5, and many of you have this memorized, the fruit of the Spirit is love. What are the three, first three of those expressions of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, and peace. And Jesus is saying in the upper room, it's my, it's my joy. It's my love. It's my peace. His peace is inseparable from his presence. His peace is never where he is not. That's why only the believer can have this peace. But it's always where he is. It's always where he is. And remember his circumstances. Jesus is speaking these words. If I knew that in the next 30 minutes I was going to hit my thumb with a hammer, I would be shaking like a leaf. He is hours out from the most heinous event in the history of the world, the cross. Not just where he bears pain, he bears our sin. He propitiates God's wrath. And in the midst of that chaos, he says, my peace, his peace. And the implications of this for the believer are mammoth. The implication is this, it's impossible for Jesus not to have peace. In fact, on the cross, the writer of Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. He had joy and he has peace. And so, whatever your situation, if you are in Christ today, this is for believers, those who have submitted to Jesus you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is 
the most remarkable gift because he's omnipotent. You can have that peace. There is no circumstance because you'll never face the cross. That's the hardest, most difficult circumstance in the history of the world. Everything pales in comparison to that. You can have this peace because it's Christ peace being formed in you by the Spirit. This week I read about this contest that these artists had. And, and the contest was this. Draw um, the best picture you can that depicts your understanding of peace. One artist drew a sunset and other, others drew these flowery meadows. And those were beautiful pictures. But the winner of that contest, he drew a picture of a bird in a nest. That sounds peaceful, doesn't it? But the nest was on the end of a branch protruding over a violent waterfall. That is what Jesus is offering. That is what Jesus is promising here the night before the cross. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the one who mediates it, okay? And he is eternally generated from the God of peace. How many times in the New Testament do we read about the God of peace? And he is promising that by the gift of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit imparts Christ himself. And that's why this peace is not the peace that the world can offer. This is a victorious peace. This peace is the earmark of the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth that will be ruled by this shalom. And jammed into this one word, peace, is everything good. Everything good. This is not just the absence of anxiety. It's that, and it's a whole lot more. It's harmony. It's restoration, it's wholeness, it's contentment. It is health, safety, love, completeness, well-being. All of that is wrapped up into this word, peace. Nothing, nothing that blesses a life is absent from this word. And that's why shalom, the Hebrew equivalent for this word, erene, is so prevalent in the Old Testament. Because that shalom was lost at the fall. And Adam represented us. And, and, and as a result of that, this, this peace, this shalom was lost. Which means because Adam represented us, our hearts are hardwired for this peace that has been lost. And as a result, everyone longs for this peace. Even the most ardent atheist. And that's why few things are sought more than peace. Everybody's looking for peace. Some people go to therapists for this peace. Some people go to the bottle. Some people go to a porn site. Some people go to a video game. Some people are looking for their best team, their favorite team to win a championship for this peace. All of that is illusory. That's the peace that the world offers. This is the peace of Christ. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, and I'm taking some fellows through this book, he says that what the world has to offer is like a fire of thorns. 
You know, if you, if you put uh, thorns uh, in, in a fire, it, it, it rages fast. It flashes fast. But then it burns out as fast as, it, as the fire rages. It's quenched. And Jesus is offering another peace. Now, when we think about peace, we have to think of it in three ways. First and foremost, peace with God. Your biggest problem, if you're not a believer, is not your lack of subjective peace in your heart. Your biggest problem can't even be felt. You are alienated from God and you are legally condemned. And so we need peace with God. The second expression of peace is the peace of God. And then peace with others that comes from those two peace, uh, forms of peace. I think Jesus is focusing on the first two here. So first of all, let's talk about the peace with God. Uh, Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is peace outside of us. This is objective peace. And so what Jesus did by going away, he ended the war between the believer and God by paying the price for peace in the court of divine justice. Isaiah would speak about that day 500 years, rather 700 years earlier. Here's what Isaiah would say. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So peace begins with being justified, being made right with God through the Son of God. But then there's the peace of God. That's subjective peace. That's peace that we, that we feel. We read that this morning at Philippians. Be anxious for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would guard your heart and mind. The peace of God is the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this. Our hearts are calmed when we reflect on the reality that the cross drives home to us that God is for us. He is for us, and therefore who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? The cross tells us as believers he is, he is for us, and he's completely invested in us. So this peace is the assurance of God's love. It's the assurance of God's fatherly and shepherding care. It's the assurance of God's wisdom coming to bear in our circumstances. It's the assurance of God's goodness. And all of that is the fruit of knowing I've been made right with God at an infinite cost. And so that is the promise of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. But then he closes this passage out. I call this the postscript. The postscript in the upper room, because as we're going to see at the end of chapter 14, they're about to leave the upper room, and they're going to make their way to Gethsemane. But look with me in verse 28. 
he says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Father, Father is greater than I. So he has repeatedly said, I am going away. And he has repeatedly said, I am coming to you throughout chapter 14. His going away is necessary for all of these promises, okay, to come to fruition. He's going to go away and, and take a cross. He's going to go away and he's going to be buried. He's going to go away and he's going to be raised from the grave. He's going to go away and he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's going away and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Here it says the Father sends the Spirit. In chapter 15, we'll see that the Son as well sends the Holy Spirit. He says he's also coming again. Now, I think there's three parts to that. The, the post-resurrection appearances, he's going to appear to these disciples. Also, ultimately, he's going to come again in the last day to judge the living and the dead and to consummate all that he has inaugurated. But contextually, he's referring here to coming again by the helper, the Holy Spirit. And this helper is so necessary because as we see here, though the disciples love Jesus in some kind of perverted way, they have followed him for three years, a distorted way. They love him, but they love him for their sake. Now, that's better than not loving him at all. Loving him for what he can do for you, uh, that's step one. He's not content with that. And he's making that clear here. He wants them to love him for his sake. If they really loved him, and by the way, that, this is instructive for us because there are many people in our lives that we love, but it's distorted love. It's not cruciform love. We, we love them for our sake. We, we love them because of what they provide us or the security they, they, they provide us. But we may not have yet advance to the place where we're loving them for their sake. That's where the disciples are, and they need the Holy Spirit to help them get to that place. If they really loved him, they would be delighting that he is going back to the Father. That's what he is referring to when he says, for the Father is greater than I. He is not saying that the Father is more God than he is. He's not saying here that his, the Father's divine nature is greater than his divine nature. That's impossible because throughout John, John has driven home that Jesus is God of very God. The very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on and says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen time and time again, he says, I am the bread of life, which takes us all the way back to the God of the I am of Exodus 3. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. And then we saw in, in chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. So what is he referring to here? Again, it's in the context of him going back to the Father. In his humiliation, that is in his human flesh before his glorification, 
the glory of the Father was seen, the outward glory was more manifest for the Father than the Son. And in fact, his official position as Redeemer, or you might say servant, it, it eclipsed the glory of all that Jesus is. But now that humiliation is ending. And that's why he can say, I, I, it's better that I go away and you should rejoice in this because my day of humiliation is over. I will be, be held in history as the victorious God-man who conquered, conquered sin, death, and the devil. Well, notice in verse 29, he says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. He says that throughout John. He tells them what's going to happen. Then it happens, and it's going to strengthen their face or their faith so that they will be given the artillery to, to preach the gospel unto death. And then verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He is coming, but he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So John is very aware, First uh, John 5, 19, that the whole world lies on the power of the evil one. And the 11 disciples here are going to have a front row seat to what happens when it appears that the evil one is going to emerge victorious. On the cross and in the burial, it's going to appear that the ruler of this world, the devil, has won. That he has had the last word. And he is reminding them here in the upper room, he has no claim on me. In fact, he is the, the power behind my death. But ultimately, I am laying down my life by my own accord as an act of obedience to the Father. Jesus is saying that here. And so we rightly see the, uh, that the cross is a, demonstrating, a demonstration of the Father's love for his people. But ultimately, this reminds us that the death of Jesus was first and foremost a demonstration of Christ's love for his Father. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament which says Jesus loved the Father. And he's laying down his life ultimately out of love for the Father. And that's important to remind us that the world doesn't revolve around us. When we get this story right, we're, uh, it, will, it will bring us to size. We'll be neither too big or too small. This world is centered on the glory of God, the love of God in Jesus Christ. And with that, Jesus gives a fitting conclusion to any service. Words that many people long to hear around lunchtime. Rise, let us go from here. <laughs> and here's what I think is going to happen. They're about to leave the upper room. He's been teaching them since chapter 13. And they're about to rise. And they're about to go from the upper room. And on the way to Gethsemane, they're going to walk by a vineyard. And he's going to point to that vineyard. He was the great illustrator. He's going to say, I am the true vine. We're going to see that next week in John 15. But in the process, Jesus has left us some glorious promises. 
glorious promises that should encourage us in the midst of any trial, any difficulty. But no, if you're not in Jesus today, if you're not a follower of Christ, you are not promised this peace. You can only have the peace that the world offers. And as you already know by experience, if you're being honest with yourself, that's no peace at all. Because it makes you a slave to your circumstances. When times are good, okay, I'm all right, but it's not real peace. And when times are bad, you are utterly devastated because you're not at peace with God. In fact, if you're not at peace with God, you're at war with him. Let me close with this brief anecdote. There was a man named Hiru Anoko. He's called the holdout soldier. He was a second lieutenant in the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II. This is a true story. You can look it up. He was commissioned by his commanding officer to go to this remote island in the Philippines and carry out a mission. And he says, you carry out that mission until we come and get you. The problem is they never came and got him. And, and so for decades, he remained on task at war with the U.S., he would polish his gun every day. He kept his uniform spotless. He was at war. And they would send people to him and tell him, look, there's even been a peace treaty signed between the U.S. and Japan, 1951. But he remained at war. He would not surrender because he did not believe that peace had been secured. Do you know, if you're not a believer today, the war has already been won? The war was won by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He defeated sin, death, and the devil. But here's the good news for you. This, this victorious warrior offers you a natural enemy to him, a peace treaty. He's already secured that peace treaty by his blood. But you must receive it. By humbling your troubled, peaceless heart and submitting to him. So as Adam and the musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to do that, to submit to the Prince of Peace today. You don't have to walk an aisle to submit to the Prince of Peace. We recognize that. But we would love to talk to you. We would love to answer any questions you might have. So won't you come this morning as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.